This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, I'm Grace Ho, Opinion Editor for The Straits Times. You're listening to In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times that takes a hard look at social and political issues of the day. Ever since launching its national smoking prevention campaign more than 30 years ago, Singapore has done well to clamp down on smoking. Today, the prevalence of smoking in Singapore is around 10%, which is low by international standards. Some countries, like New Zealand, have set tobacco end game targets, which is basically about ending tobacco use altogether, of 5%. But young people in Singapore are still picking up cigarettes, why is this so, and what more can be done? In the studio with us today is Professor Yvette van der Eyck, Assistant Professor at the National University of Singapore, Saw Sweehawk School of Public Health. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Professor, I'm not a regular smoker, but I have to confess that out of curiosity, I have tried a cigarette with menthol capsules that you can crush with your lips. And I have to admit, it cut the acrid taste of a traditional cigarette. So, other than menthol, what sorts of flavors are we talking about here and how are they consumed? Yeah, so actually there's a, a wide range of added flavors that we find in cigarettes nowadays. And what we find, especially in the last 10 years, is that tobacco companies have been really broadening out the different flavors. And in recent years, also in the Singapore market, we've seen an increasing array of flavors. You know, a lot of them are fruit flavors or mimicking candy type flavors, the kind that you would find in sweets. And like what you described, you know, we're also seeing more of these what we call capsule cigarettes, which have like a crushable flavor capsule in the filter. So with that, people can, you know, create multiple flavors in the same smoke. And uh, we know from our research that these appeal especially to young people. Um, because, you know, when, when, when people first try smoking for the first time, you know, the tobacco is very harsh, right? Whereas menthol acts as a sort of anesthetic, masking that harshness. So young people who start smoking with menthols are much more likely to then continue smoking and also to become addicted to it. Yeah, because also some flavors, they, they, they compound the addictive effect of nicotine. Yeah, or they act as bronchodilators, so the smoke goes into the body faster and hits the brain faster. So makes so that makes the cigarettes more addictive. Well, that's interesting because I didn't know that they could be bronchodilators. I just thought that they were flavors. So why should we be concerned about this, especially among younger people and in Singapore particularly? Yeah, well, actually, tobacco companies have a long history of designing cigarettes so that they appeal to young people and also so that they are more addictive or as addictive as possible. So, for instance, uh, tobacco companies have been experimenting for a long time with different additives, including flavors like menthol, that can, you know, open up the airways so the smoke hits the brain faster, or that actually uh, work, interact with nicotine in the brain to make its impact more addictive. And menthol is one such flavor. Yeah. Uh, so actually what we see in Singapore is that around half of the cigarettes on the market here are flavored with menthol. And even then, a lot of the cigarettes that aren't considered as flavored, like certain light variants. Um, even they have very low levels of menthol to act as bronchodilators and to increase the addictive effect of nicotine. Right, but circling back to the issue of young people, why is it that they're particularly, I suppose, in ways susceptible to flavored you know, cigarettes or, let's say, light cigarettes? What is it that holds that appeal to them? Yeah, well, I think um, 
One of it is the novelty, because as you describe also, you know, you had tried a capsule cigarette. I guess part of it was maybe the curiosity, you know, what is this new techie, clicky feature? Um, and also, you know, because for those who aren't seasoned smokers, perhaps the tobacco can come across as very harsh. So for them, if they try that, like a heavy non-flavored cigarette the first time, they'll cough and they'll think it's gross. And actually, in some of our own research, we've, we've been doing studies with young people in Singapore, right? Um, young smokers asking them what was their initial experiences with these different cigarettes. And they described, you know, these unflavored, you know, like the Marlboro Reds is very harsh and heavy and very disgusting. And they would never have tried them again. It's when they tried the menthol cigarettes that they were actually, oh, okay, you know, and then they were continuing using those. So it's that harshness. Um, so it's more palatable. It makes this, this this cigarette more palatable for their for their taste, and also just the novelty. And especially when you look at the way a lot of these cigarettes are packaged, or at least before plain packaging, before that mandate, uh, the way that they were packaged was you know very much tailored to the young people. You know, you look at the packs; it's like black with all these clubby bright colors. You know, um, very youthful kind of look which is much more likely to appeal to the young people. And also the brand names that they use, brand names like Click for Mix or Berry Burst, you know, it's like flavors of sweets almost. Yeah, it's, it actually sounds like candy. Um, yeah. But, well, Singapore has tightened regulations over the years. You talked about pain packaging, that's one of them. But now we also have more smoke-free areas, and these were recently extended to public parks and gardens and recreational beaches. Uh, we've also had more taxes, advertising bans, bans on shisha, e-cigarettes, and so on. Now, this being the case, why would specifically targeting flavors be effective? And are there any other alternatives to, let's say, banning flavors altogether? Yeah, I mean, when we look at what could be done next in a country, we have to look at the specific circumstances of that country and what's already been done, and then what are the remaining gaps, essentially. And for Singapore, you're right. Singapore has done a lot of measures already, but then there are still gaps in what we've done, you know. And one of them is that we don't have a flavored cigarettes ban. Added tobacco flavors, including menthol, have been banned in quite a number of places already, right? So Canada had a ban for a few years. European Union, the UK, several African countries have already banned added flavors from cigarettes, right? Singapore has not. And one striking thing about Singapore is the market for these flavored cigarettes is massive, right? I mean, about half of the cigarettes sold here are flavored, which is way more than in countries like US or in many of the European countries before they had their ban. So that's one huge gap that remains. And from our own studies, we also know that these flavored cigarettes appeal to young people. So we suspect that it's one of the main reasons that young people here continue to smoke despite all the rules is because of the appeal of these flavors. Yeah. And then beyond that, there's other things Singapore could do, like taxes haven't really been raised significantly for a while now, which means that actually over time, cigarettes have become more affordable, right? Because the prices have not been going up with inflation. So taxes, they need to keep on raising the taxes of cigarettes here. And then, yeah, as in many other places, um, you know, Singapore has not yet set a tobacco endgame target, which is something that needs to, uh, there's a conversation that we need to start here for sure, I think. Because many other countries are on that trajectory already, whereas Singapore is not. Right. And, and speaking of that conversation that we need to start, could you share with us, you know, in more detail, what other countries have done specifically when it comes to regulating or banning flavors? You mentioned a few countries. So how successful has it been? And is it a blanket ban? Yeah. Um, let's see. One of the first countries to ban flavors was Canada. So this was a few years ago. 
But the big difference between Canada and Singapore is at that time, uh, Canada's market for flavored cigarettes was relatively smaller. Those cigarettes probably comprise around five and certainly no more than 10% of the total cigarette market, whereas in Singapore, it's close to 50. So it's much bigger here. Yeah. So for them, it was a smaller proportion of smokers that were affected by that ban ultimately. But what they still found was that quite a big proportion of them ended up quitting. Um, And what was interesting from the Canada study is before they implemented their ban, they asked smokers how they thought they would respond. People that were smoking menthol cigarettes, right? And, you know, many of them said, actually, most of them had said, oh, you know, I'll just switch to non-flavored cigarettes or oh, I'll just get them on the black market, right? But then in reality, when they surveyed them at follow-up after the ban had been implemented, they found that actually most of them had quit. <laughs> like a lot of them, that the ones that said they were going to switch to non-flavored actually ended up quitting or trying to quit. So the flavors made a huge difference. It made a difference, yeah. And from then we estimated that probably about a third of the smokers would quit. And we've actually done our own simulation studies in the Singapore context where we look at, okay, if we were to ban flavored cigarettes here, what would be the impact? on, you know, smoking initiation rates or current smoking rates. And we estimate that around, we'd have a third less smokers. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Let's continue the conversation with my guest. And I also wanted to find out your thoughts about the minimum legal age to buy and use tobacco products. Now, we know that last year, this went up from 20 to 21. And it's been a progressive move because it was increased from 18 to 19 years in the year 2019 and then to 20 uh, a year later. So is there room to do more? I mean, apart from, well, raising the minimum legal age continuously. I mean, what is considered a good or appropriate age to raise it to? Well, if the message is... If the ultimate question here is, what is an appropriate age to start smoking? It's never. (laughs) So theoretically, the MLA should be, what, 120 or however old the oldest person in the world is. And actually, funnily enough, Hawaii once proposed to raise MLA to 100. So if you're asking it that way, then yeah, MLA should just keep going up. Um, I mean, yeah, there have been some proposals to raise MLA to 25. um, And that's because, I mean, when you look at the way that the brain develops, Right. Like there are certain parts of the brain that are hit quite hard by the nicotine uh, and, and that are sort of, well, their development is, is impaired by the addiction. Right. And these these regions of the brain are developing up until age 25. So that's the window which people are more vulnerable to developing an addiction. So theoretically, if MLA were raised to 25 and if everyone complied perfectly to that law, <laughs> Which probably won't happen, but if they did, uh, we would expect a lot fewer people to get addicted if they do try to pick up smoking after age 25. And also most, actually pretty much all smoking initiations are before age 25. But the problem is in the real world, not everyone complies perfectly to MLA laws, right? If MLA is raised to 21, people might start smoking at 18 or 19 instead of 16. So we have to bear that in mind as well. Right. Bearing in mind human frailty and foibles. Again, how do other countries deal with this issue? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it goes back to educating the retailers and working with the retailers and making sure that laws are enforced. And actually, that's a very important point, not just when it comes to MLA laws, but any kind of tobacco measure is it needs to be well enforced, right? Um, Because if you have, for example, a smoking ban or a ban on e-cigarettes or something, if there's not proper enforcement of these laws, people will look for ways to break them. And there will be this kind of 
unspoken rule that, okay, this is a law, but it's not being enforced, so we're just going to go ahead anyway. Right. And what other options are there on the table? I've heard a term called tobacco-free generation, which has been bandied about quite a lot in recent times. Could you explain to us what this is, and is this a viable option? Yeah, so actually what's interesting about this tobacco-free generation proposal, so this was... um, yeah, just within this last year, New Zealand announced that it's going to have a tobacco-free generation. So essentially what that means is they're going to raise the MLA by one year every year into perpetuity. So the effect is that anyone born in or after 2005 will never be able to buy cigarettes there, regardless of whether they are 18 or 20 or 100 years old. Yeah, so that's the whole point of tobacco-free generation. The idea is to phase out cigarette sales to our younger generations while leaving the current smokers alone. That's the principle. And yeah, there's, there's been a lot of talk about this recently because since New Zealand made the announcement, uh, Malaysia has gone ahead and said, okay, we want to do this too. And Malaysia might actually beat New Zealand to it because they've set a pretty ambitious uh, target for it. Uh, Denmark also. Uh, and since then, there's also been talk in Netherlands. And actually, uh, b- before New Zealand made the announcement, two towns had already gone ahead and tried to implement it. So the first one was Balanga, which is a tiny town in the Philippines of about 100,000 people. Uh, so they had um, had one of these tobacco-free generation laws, but then they were sued by the Philippine Tobacco Institute, which is backed by Philip Morris, which has billions of dollars at its disposal. So, of course, they weren't able to, you know, stand up to this lawsuit. And the second place was Brookline in Massachusetts. Uh, so this town actually has gone ahead and implemented this law already. Yeah, so New Zealand is not actually the first. But yes, there's been a lot of talk about it. And ironically, the proposal, the idea for it actually came from Singapore. So in 2010, it was a group of Singapore doctors and uh, researchers and medical students that were advocating for this proposal. So the idea has been around for quite a while, for yeah, about 12 years, I would say. Right. And just a final parting shot. I mean, in terms of all the possible measures on the table, how do you see them kind of fit, you know, into each other, and how should they be implemented going forward? Yeah. So, I mean, if the goal is to achieve a tobacco endgame in Singapore, right, um, generally this goal is set at a smoking prevalence of 5%. And Singapore's smoking prevalence right now is around 10%. So that means we have to cut smoking rates by half, right? And there's a number of ways we can get to this. And again, it's like the point I made in the beginning where we have to look at the gaps in Singapore, what more remains to be done, and what are the possible options that we have, right? So there are policies like the flavored cigarettes ban, that we know will make a very big and dramatic impact um, almost immediately. Because the thing about the flavored cigarettes ban is when you ban flavored cigarettes, if around half of our smokers here are using menthols, we can expect a good number of them will be trying to quit because they don't want to switch to non-flavored cigarettes. Then there will also be those who will just simply switch to non-flavored ones, right? So we would expect quite a lot of um, people to quit you know, in the short term. And then on top of that, we would also expect a long-term decline as fewer young people start smoking. So this would be a very effective short-term strategy. Yeah. Then you have, um, you know, then you have policies like the tobacco-free generation, which are very effective in the long term. So we've actually done projections for this in the Singapore context, uh, where we figure, okay, if we were to have this policy, what would be the impact on smoking prevalence over, say, a 50-year horizon? And what we find is that, yes, it will almost pretty much get rid of smoking completely, but it will take about 50 years. 50 years. <laughs> or maybe 40. But anyway, it will take a long time because the current smokers, it doesn't affect them at all. So it's really just a very tiny decline with each year as fewer people initiate smoking, as that gap widens, right, between the youngest smokers and our teenagers of today. So really what we want 
is is policies that hit the smoking rates quickly, policies that have a very short-term, quick impact. So something like a flavors ban, tobacco taxes are very effective as that as well because people respond pretty quickly to price increases usually. So I would say something like that. And then combined with long-term strategies like the tobacco-free generations, There's also another proposal which has actually been talked about quite a lot. Uh, New Zealand has actually announced that it will be doing this as well. They haven't released the details of what exactly, but they have announced that they will be doing um, what we call a nicotine cap. So what that means is they will restrict the nicotine levels in cigarettes to a very, very low level, a level at which cigarettes aren't really addictive anymore. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't make sense to buy them then. Yeah. I mean, you can still smoke, but you won't get much of a nicotine kick. So <laughs> for smokers, it means, and actually they've done quite a lot of studies on this, um, a lot of randomized clinical trials where they see, where they get, they recruit smokers and they see, okay, they switch them to these cigarettes or they let them stay on the regular ones and then they compare what the effect would be, right? Um, and what they actually found is that even smokers who aren't interested in quitting, uh, switching them to these you know, almost nicotine-free cigarettes, actually a lot of them end up quitting and they don't really get severe withdrawal symptoms. So it's very effective, actually, in these clinical trials. Um, yeah, so so this is a, a policy that's being advocated for quite a lot in the United States. And also New Zealand seems to be backing it as well. It's part of its long-term strategy. So, and actually, we've done projections of this in Singapore as well. Um, and also, there's been projections of it in New Zealand and United States. And they all found that, yeah, this would... This would get smoking rates to well below 5% in just a few years. Right. And on that note, thank you, Professor Van der Eyck, for coming on our show. Thank you. And that's a wrap for In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Grace Ho. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles or check out the opinion section of The Straits Times, we have links in our podcast text description below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.